0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Andrew Atkinson, who is currently an independent consultant and an author of the new book, High-Performance PostgreSQL for Ruby on Rails, released by Pragmatic Programmers. Andrew joins us from Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the United States. Andrew Atkinson, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm really glad to be here.
0: So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: Yeah, well, I was thinking about that a bit, and I actually have a lot of bullet points, but if I was going to kind of boil it down to a couple to keep the answer somewhat shorter, I was thinking about kind of the, you know, one being the level of effort required for a change being kind of proportional to the size of the change. So if you wanna make a small change, you know, if you're a new developer on a system or a code base and you wanna make a smaller change, it shouldn't be a Herculean effort, I think, to make a small change, right? It should be kind of proportional. It should be relatively quick. I don't wanna say easy. I'm trying to avoid the word easy, but relatively quick to find where the change should go, how to write a test for it and how to get it introduced, that kind of thing. And then I'd say the other big one I was thinking about was it should be relatively straightforward to release your change. So there's a lot that of course is baked into that, but everything from being able to test your change well locally, test it externally in kind of a continuous integration environment, and then get it released ideally with an automated release process. Those are the two, I guess, that for me are the maybe the biggest two as far as they speak to how well maintained the software is, because I think both it it helps grow the contributor base if you can have the ability to make changes with relatively low effort. And then also by having a a relatively straightforward release process, I think it encourages kind of iterative development style and, and frankly, maintenance kinds of changes like, you know, code removal and optimization and things like that.
0: And those are topics I definitely want to dig into it with you later on. I'm also curious, mentioned in the intro that you, you've written a book and you focus a lot on databases in particular. How do you kind of think about what a well-maintained database look like? I know that a lot of engineers might think of like just it's a hash in the sky. We throw things in all this data in there. And I don't feel like I've had enough conversations around the, the topic of just well-maintained There's performant databases and, you know, like optimize and I'm air quoting that, but like, but what is it, what does it mean to be a well-maintained or groomed database?
1: There's a lot of similarities, I think, to applications with their dependencies and libraries and things like that on the database side as well. So we could think about is the database running a version that's within the last couple of major versions, right? Because, you know, I'm most familiar with Postgres, but all of the major database providers are adding new features and fixing security issues and improving documentation with each new major version. So if you're running a version that's quite old, that's something that, you know, is not going to help maintenance-wise or kind of well-maintained-wise compared with being on a newer version. I would also think about the level of investment that maybe you've put into how the data is described, how you're trying to prevent bad data from going into your database on the front end. So that's going to be on the database side, that's usually going to be constraints. And in Postgres, we have several constraints. We can use foreign key and primary keys to link data together. We can also use check constraints. We can use exclusion constraints. I'll just kind of hand wave over those for now, but The idea is that they're all about what kinds of rules can I write up front to avoid bad data from getting into my database as much as possible. And I think in my experience, maybe a better maintained database has those capabilities because none of them are really created by default. They have to be created by programmers that decide to add those things. So I think when they are present, I think that data tends to have a higher quality level. And then maybe one more thing would be kind of like with software too, you want a low amount of, I would call it bloat, which is an overloaded term, but in software, I would say that would be code that's not executed, you know, probably because probably more of a legacy application where features that were built and popularly used in the, in the product or the platform have unfortunately been, you know, they're no longer used, but maybe they haven't really been cleaned up. The same thing can happen, of course, in databases too, right? So you can have tables sitting around and indexes and other database objects that are really not providing any value and they're just consuming space. And in the case of indexes, they're possibly slowing down writes and that kind of thing. So I think a, a well-maintained database also has a low percentage of that kind of bloat that's relative to the active objects. So it might be like maybe less than 10 or 20% of, ideally it's it's very low, maybe 5%, you know, those kinds of things. It's it's probably unrealistic to say it's zero, uh, but like having a low amount of unneeded objects, I think indicates, is an indicator of a well-maintained database.
0: That's interesting thinking about, and, you know, coming from, at least being part of the software industry for 25 years or so there was an era where we always you know i worked in within, within teams where we had like a dedicated dba people don't know what that means it's like a database administrator and they were responsible for they protected the database they kind of were the one at least in the teams that i worked in they kind of would map out like here's how the tables are going to look this here is where you can store and you know access different data and maybe some stored procedures you can use to interact with different areas of the database and things like that and then as we, I migrated over into the say Ruby on Rails world where I started like leaning on active record and being like, okay, I'm gonna lean on the ORM to be a little bit more of the gatekeeper about what goes into the database. And like, that's where we're gonna put our rules because it's easier to change and we don't need to go through a DBA to make changes all the time. And it was easier, conceivably easier to make changes quickly. Um, because we didn't need to like, you know, do a lot of things to the database outside of you know, add a couple of new columns or and things like that, or add some indexes and some kind of light approach to interacting with the database. But in, it sounds like in your world, you're kind of thinking also about like your database might start accumulating a lot of data for a long time. And maybe there's an element of like unnecessary data to keep around anymore because actually you can't reference because the code's changed, but did you actually go through and delete this columns? Or if you remove features or, and we I want to get into that as well with you, but if you're removing things, how do you think about cleaning up and maintaining the database or reducing how much stuff is in there to potentially make it faster for your current user base, not just in case maybe those users that are no longer around and any of their associated data, even though they've archived themselves, but you still have all that stuff lingering around your database and that's still being indexed.
1: Yeah. And I think implicit in that too, I didn't really mention was, I'm talking about a large, a fairly large project that's been around for a number of years and probably went through a, probably, you know, I've tended to work at startup companies that they might be on the boom cycle or have just experienced a boom cycle and are doing a lot of hiring of new engineering staff. And a lot of times, you know, in those kinds of hyper growth is a term that's thrown around, but where you're exploring the market, right? You're trying to find product market fit. A lot of times, in my experience, there's a lot of features and aspects of the overall software platform that they're no longer used at all. And of course, like that means there's data that where that's the case as well. That's linked to those features. Thinking about smaller applications though, or thinking about maintainable practices with the database. I've got a couple ideas on that too. Uh, would you like to hear those?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: You know, you mentioned the database administrator, you know, and this, this is covered a bit in the book too, in different spots. But I think if you're a back-end engineer and you're working with your Postgres database or some other relational database, there's kinds of things you can do in the database, like create, you can create functions, you can create uh, procedures in Postgres, you can create triggers, and you can actually take a software development approach to those too and use, in in Ruby on Rails, for example, there's a couple that are listed in the book, but you can use some tools that allow you to do like versioning and version control for those capabilities and, and really treat them like first class source code in your application code base. And in terms of maintainability, that's huge to me because it provides a lot of visibility on those things for the whole team. Uh, you can use version control, but also a change management process. You know, those things will go up as pull requests or whatever, merge requests, just like any other source code would. They can be reviewed by another team member and that sort of thing. So I think that's, that's important regardless of your size, even if you're a small team and you want to dip into some Postgres functions, for example. In the book, readers work with the FX Ruby gem that lets you write functions and triggers and Postgres and then... And then manage their life cycle. And one other quick thing too is, even for with Postgres, one thing that's really cool is you can do, of course, structured relational data, but you can also do schemaless data or unstructured data with JSON and JSONB columns. And one tool I like that I don't think gets a lot of attention is, even if you use the schemaless style storage for your data, where you you know you're you're like we're not really sure what this is going to be. We're going to in the in the book I have. Uh, readers work on kind of like metrics that they might store where they're like we might want to just create a lot of new metrics we don't really know what their types are and what their names are and what values they'll have so there's an example where we put that in a json b column in terms of maintenance though one thing i think is really cool is there's a couple of extensions out there and there's even one that requires no extension that lets you still add some schema definition to that unstructured json data So you can say, here are the keys, here are the types, and you can actually add that later and that kind of thing, which is cool. So I think that could be nice too. And this is something I've faced in practice at a past company. We had different, you know, we had a lot of like little JSON columns all over the place. And a lot of times people were like, what's in here? You know, what, it's kind of a grab bag of data, right? You're like, I don't know what the attributes are, you know, what, what's required and what's optional and what are their types So using these JSON ones called Postgres JSON schema, for example, this one would work regardless of which programming language you use. If you, but if you use Postgres, you can run this Postgres JSON schema uh, tool that lets you set up a check constraint, actually, that will even validate the data. So it, it both documents the data in the JSON column and validates it at the insert time.
0: That's interesting. I'll definitely include links for those in the show notes for folks. And it also sounds like that's referenced in your book as well, right? And so, you know, for listeners that hadn't had paid attention during the intro, but you recently authored a book titled High Performance PostgreSQL for Rails. Could you give the listeners a brief overview of what the book covers and what inspired you to write it?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Yeah. So the book is Aimed at uh, primarily Ruby on Rails developers, mainly just because that's my background. However, I hope that the book is useful to web developers generally, backend engineers that work even in other languages or frameworks like Python and Django or PHP and Laravel or that sort of thing, where they want to they use Postgres and they want to kind of take things to the next level, or they want to build their skills and their knowledge with what Postgres has available and how to use it, and they want to do that with a real example application that they can practice on. Essentially, they can edit Postgres config files, they can run multiple instances, they can set up replication, they can use all sorts of things. And what inspired me to write it was a couple of years ago, it's been kind of a gradual process where it's, I'd say the biggest thing though really is not, you know, it's not really about like financial motivation or clout, but it's really honestly just because I really enjoy working with it and it's really practical and it kind of lines up with some of my personal values, I guess, around like practical sorts of things. And a number of companies I've worked at have used Postgres. And I always felt like I kind of used it in a basic way. Like as, as you mentioned earlier, like, you know, you use the object relational mapper, you write some application code that generates some SQL queries, but you don't tend to think about it a lot, you know, like what is the, what's happening there and I had the chance to, that's kind of, that, that works fine. A lot of developers, that's, you know, the, the extent to their, their interest might be their opportunities. But I had this, these circumstances a few years ago where I had both kind of the interest and the opportunity collide. I was working at a company that had huge growth in the applications usage, and it was a Rails app with a Postgres 10 database. And we were kind of reaching the limits of, we were on the largest instance class available on AWS, and we didn't have a DBA on our team. And we had a pretty small team, like less than 10 engineers that were working on the platform, mostly doing feature development. And I had been getting more and more interested in Postgres, you know, more or less on a parallel timeline, but not, you know, like not necessarily seeking it out. But this opportunity came where I could really uh, dive into optimizations and improvements that could help us reach greater levels of scale and have a more reliable and predictable kind of running operator experience. So I myself picked up Couple of Postgres books. Started reading a lot more docs, and I was I thought about some of the engineers I'd worked with that I thought were great engineers, and a lot of them knew a lot about the database. And I, I was like, "Let's do this," you know. So I kind of dove in, and you could argue maybe became a little obsessed with uh, learning everything I could about Postgres from an operator's perspective, and um, decided at some point, you know, we had we had put together a pretty good suite of of work at this past company. And I decided to kind of think about like growing my influence in the industry more generally and, you know, like what else I could do with that information once I had, I actually put it together as an internal presentation at the company. Like we did a lot of work and then I I made a slide deck and it was an engineering team meeting and, you know, just kind of presented what we did to help share the knowledge with the other engineering team members and stuff. And I thought, you know, this is fun. I actually wonder if I could explore this kind of externally So that's what I I did, and I submitted my first conference proposal to a Postgres conference and, of course, needed to remove some company-specific data and stuff like that. But there's a big market for, like, case study-style presentations at a lot of these databases conferences because they want to hear, you know, what people's real usage experience is like, what kinds of issues they run into and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I um, submitted a proposal to PGConf NYC back in 2021 and had it accepted and presented there, and it was a great experience. And since then, was reached out to by a publisher, and have been blogging about Postgres. And then I, I went through their, the publisher's process, and have been writing this uh, book now for about 18 months, and we're just about done.
0: <laughs> I know, writing a technical book can be a significant undertaking. Personal experience included in that, I did not finish writing my book, so that's the that's the fun part. But I was writing a book for Ruby on Rails and for O'Reilly would have been their first Ruby on Rails book back in 2005 and then business took off at the same time. And it was very difficult to keep up with the pre 1.0 era Ruby on Rails moving targeted and like where your documentation keeps having to change every. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. I learned a lot through the process though, for for sure. So, you know, thinking through that as you're kind of coming to wrapping up your book, sounds like what made you think like, oh yeah, I'm the one that should should write this sort of thing. For listeners out there, there might be like, hey, I, I know a little bit about something and they're maybe curious, but like how do you get over that little mental hurdle of being like, I can do this and or I should be the one to do it, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's that mental hurdle, and I think it's good that you call that out. And you know, I still I go to Postgres conferences and talk with Postgres core committers and and have imposter syndrome. And you know, it's like I guess for me, you know, I found that I was experienced at a bunch of different companies and had used Postgres in a lot of different ways with a lot of different applications, and felt like I started to sort of like see common patterns, right? And I started to like I've talked with a lot of developers, and I I'd go to different you know meetups and conferences and. I felt like I had a a pulse on the kinds of like what we were talking about earlier, where a lot of developers might, you know, they, they may not sort of like immediately have some of the needs to grow their database knowledge and skills, but they might aspire to acquire those, that knowledge and those skills. And I do think that there's a lot, there's again, the practical component. Postgres is an extremely popular database. And so I did feel a little bit like as someone who likes to mentor other developers and stuff, particularly earlier career people, I did want to write part of the motivation for the book was I did think this book could help people build skills in a way that could get them a a next job or maybe a promotion or maybe take on more challenging projects within their current company and role. And that was based on some experience I've had as well in talking with people about like, let's talk about SQL, let's talk about indexes, you know, let's, and then the other, the other thing was I did have the chance to work with a database administrator who had been doing it for, you know, 20 years or something and had focused solely on that. And I learned a lot from that person you know, how they approached things. And it was quite different from, I think, like how app devs work, you know, there's just a lot of different concerns about managing instances, you know, like you said earlier, like protecting data, being kind of the the guardian of both the data itself, but also the workload, right? The queries and making sure that the, it's essentially a server, right? Like making sure it's, it's performant and it's tuned appropriately. And that what's being asked of it is, uh, makes sense based on its, it's resources available and stuff. So for example, you might need to do some tuning. So that was cool. And I I just felt like there was this confluence of factors, you know, like experience and interest and then, you know, network and then a little bit the marketing side too, right? Like I felt like, Hey, there's, you know, I think this is a topic that people are interested in and they might be willing to spend a little money on learning more. And, and then I guess in closing, one more thing was just something happened for me where I guess I felt like Postgres, Uh, you know, it's 35 years old software project, like it's uh, stood the test of time. There's a little bit of a a renaissance happening now, I'd say with a lot of, there's a number of startup companies that are building on Postgres, kind of using it in different niches. And I felt like it was something I really wanted to continue to build my career on myself. And that there's such a a deep and, and wide amount of things you can learn about and put into practice that it felt like It wasn't just going to be a quick hit piece, like a year or two. It was like, I can do this for years. So yeah, that was part of it.
0: Hey folks, it's me, Robbie. I want you to take a moment and close your eyes. Now picture your code and your applications as a symphony. Now to keep that symphony playing smoothly, you need an orchestra of tools. That's where our podcast sponsor, AppSignal, takes center stage. They combine the elegance of error tracking, the precision of performance monitoring, and the harmony of logging into one symphonic suite. Whether you're composing with Ruby, jamming with Elixir, orchestrating with Node.js, or harmonizing with Python, or maybe even have a little bit of flourish of JavaScript, AppSignal's got the sheet music for you, And here's the crescendo. Plans start at just $23 US a month. That's gotta be music to your budget's ears. Plus they're certified ISO 27001 and they dance the GDPR and HIPAA compliance beats. So don't miss a beat, my friends. Head on over to AppSignal.com and tell them that your good friend Robbie from maintainable sent you. Now, open your eyes and let the symphony of smooth coding begin. Let's get back to our show. Yeah. Thanks for kind of sharing the big picture. Like it's going on in your brain there, how you're thinking about this stuff. And for those listening, I think, you know, there's a number of takeaways you can have there. And, but I think even in, you know, if for those maybe considering picking up the book, we'll definitely include links in the show notes and stuff for like promo codes and stuff like that. I, I believe we'll be able to do that for your publisher. Was that who was who published it again? Yep. It's a uh, pragmatic programmers. Excellent. All right, well, there's a couple of other, there's some topics I wanted to dig into as well, outside of this, and one of them is related to, when you're thinking about legacy code bases, how do you kind of, when you navigate them, when you're like, you come in and you're to a project and you're trying to understand, how do you determine which features in, you know, say, a legacy code base, maybe are no longer priorities. Maybe they should be considered for removal. How do you go about thinking about that? I know one of the things we talk about a lot is like trying to refactor code, rewrite coding, rewrite versus refactor, but there's also removing code. It can be daunting for people joining a team where you weren't around when things were built. Maybe you don't have access to the original developers that were there or even the original product owners, like people come and go with an organization. And so you're kind of a little nervous about removing things, but what are some tips and, and how do you think about it and how do you kind of execute on that?
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And I, I guess I forgot to say this at the very beginning, but I'm really excited to be speaking with you because I do actually just really love software maintenance of old projects. I, I realized at some point in my career, I'm like, you know, I kind of like this stuff. And it's like, <laughs> not all developers do. And of, of course, like it's tricky because it's not always incentivized at companies to work on maintenance. You know, there might be, and actually to get in, to segue into answering your question, you know, a lot of incentives are around what, what kind of new value are you adding? Right. And a lot of startup companies are around growth of recurring revenue versus profit margin. And those are real world challenges. I think everyone needs to make their own individual choices as far as what they're comfortable kind of advocating for and working on. But that being said, if you have the opportunity to work on kind of like taking a holistic view of your software platform and saying, where is the value here? I don't think like any individual on a team, assuming your team's like at least a few people, you know. Uh, I don't think any individual should make the call in a vacuum. It should be kind of a, you know, a shared responsibility with whoever's leading the, there's, there's both, I guess, the kind of upcoming engineering hours, like where you're going to spend those, right? There's the the backlog and the, the roadmap. But I guess there's also this kind of like um, arguably in my opinion, there's kind of a parallel process, which is like, if we can scope or if we can better focus our software platform there'll be some knock-on benefits to developers, right? They can, again, they can more easily make changes. They can more easily ship changes. The test suite might be more reliable. The test suite might be faster with less code. With all of that lead-in, I guess, to answer your question, I think I shared this link with you before, but the best link I've seen is actually this this, uh, lengthy post from Mixpanel that talks about unshipping features. And one of the big takeaways from that for me was this idea of like, if you were to lay out, if you took a software platform and let's just say there were a hundred features or what you would call a feature, if you separately wrote out, they they, they talked about mission and vision alignment. And these are kind of, you know, hand wavy terms and developers are like, what is a mission? What is it? I don't know, maybe, but I think of the mission as, you know, well, I, I guess I don't need to tell you what mission and vision means, but if you think about the mission for your company or your product, and then you think about the vision or the like what we're trying to do in the future, you know, where are we going? And then if you essentially go through that list, it's it's likely some of those things are not going to be aligned with either the mission or the vision. And part of the mixed panel article talks about like for features that are not mission and vision aligned, those you should consider unshipping, and that's the word they use, which I think is a cooler sounding word than just deleting or <laughs> like but really they're talking about deleting and as we know with software we can't just straight delete something that has usage of course you know we could deprecate it so there's this whole other technical there's a lot of interesting things about around why these things don't necessarily tend to happen though and a lot of it is human factors and a lot of it is incentives in my opinion but they're solvable i think and i think starting from mission and vision alignment let's say you've identified a few things that aren't really a fit anymore you know your platform has been around for five or six years and it's pivoted in a couple of ways. And I think I I sent you an example of like, let's say you're a small business tools platform and you like, maybe you did like, I'm just going to make up a feature, like you did video interviews and it required some integrations with a third party video API service that maybe like transcodes your videos and does some things and costs you some money for your business. Right. Let's say you've, you know, you've taken a look and you're like, you know, we, we've done none of those videos in the last like six months or even a year and it's kind of like cleaning out your closet, you know, it's like, or your, your clothes, right? Like I haven't worn this in a year. Why, why is it taking up space in my closet? Like, you know, I'm a big fan of Marie Kondo, no surprise, but
0: uh, you might fit into it again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's an emotional attachment in a sense, like for, for clothing, right? Like maybe it, which is, which is great. Like if you feel good wearing it and stuff and if, you know, if you have the closet space then you know, you gotta, you do you, but uh, (laughs) uh, for, for, you know, for software teams, There is a real carrying cost to things that aren't used or needed or not vision mission and vision aligned. And they impact the developers with mostly in my experience, like it's, it's harder to change stuff. Like, why do we have this dependency, like this dependence, this transitive dependency, that's not our direct dependency, but is a dependency of our dependency it's broken, you know? And it's like, now we're going down this rabbit hole of maintaining stuff. That's not even valuable to the company. So what kind of fuels my fire around that is just like trying to cut out things that are not, that are going to impact developers. And again, going all the way back to the beginning, like affect their ability to make changes with a proportional amount of effort and to ship changes. And, and then thinking about that for the whole team, right? You wouldn't have the whole team working on this or you'd never ship anything. But if you have like maybe one developer or a couple that are kind of rotating around, or you have a process that rotates on the team, you know, like, Are there some things we want to put in our upcoming backlog that are things we want to have a discussion with on the whole team? That's like, you know, we're not doing the video calling thing anymore. So we're going to announce to our customers that this will be going away. And then I I really like how Mixpanel also suggests providing some alternatives to your current paying customers. Like, you know, hey, here's a different service that we've even vetted and tried out and it looks pretty good. And we'd recommend transitioning there. Providing their data if they uh, have data in your platform that they might want to continue to use uh, independently. And then, you know, announcing like being pretty transparent about what your plans are. We're going to shut this down on a certain date, um, a sunset date, and then, um, yeah, and then shutting it down. And then once all that's done, then to me, there's like the the fun engineering work of actually gradually removing stuff.
0: Brings up a lot of thoughts. I'm curious to see how the next year or two, I know that like 37 Signals is going to be releasing a few products that are you know, you pay once. So it's kind of like pushing against the SaaS pricing model a little bit. And as, as a business owner myself, you know, I look over our list of subscriptions we're paying for monthly or annually. So we can get the, you know, the discount on them. And there's this weird codependency problem. And I, I feel like between me and a lot of the different SaaS products we're paying for, I'm like this thing, we don't use it as much as we used to, but we kind of still use it because we've stored a bunch of data there. We think we need it maybe one day, but maybe if I'm being honest, we don't. And sometimes when those products like announce that they're going to go away, it's almost a relief for me that I'm like, I guess, yeah, we'll export it. But I'm like, am I ever going to do anything with that stuff again? There's all these interesting things where it's like company problems end up becoming like software programming problems where they're having to maintain things that customers are rarely using. I'm, my company would be an example of a customer that's paying for something because we don't want to lose access to our data, but really, we're not really doing much with it either. So they're having to support something that we're not actually even needing. We're a small client, probably a customer for in the big picture probably for them. But I know that that ends up happening. On all of the software projects for our clients, where they've got customers that are no longer around, or kind of like, you know, they've been a grandfather, legacy clients for a long time. And so there's like some couple of features that they need, they think they need, or they think their customers are using, they may or may not be. And there's not usually enough analytics to even assess that sometimes when you come in, and like, can we, what can we get rid of? And everybody's like, well, can't we just hide it? And then it's like, it's not that easy when it comes to the code base side of things. So. So in that, and I'll link to the mixed panel article as well. And I think there's another topic here around naming. You you think that's a good term for? it sounds a little bit more positive, I guess, in a way. It's not just like, it's not like just taking the trash out and like delete. I think that's one of the challenges for software development It's also just like how we describe things like refactoring is an interesting concept. I feel like it's not always been the easiest thing for clients to wrap their head around. Like, what, what do you mean like cleaning up things? Like, why didn't you get it? Why didn't you write it clean in the first place is kind of like the response for non-software engineers. like wondering, Like, I didn't ask you to cut a kind of corners to build this thing. Or I didn't ask you to write software that's a little buggy or it's just like, so it's an interesting thing of like, how do you spin that or rephrase it in a way that sounds like it's productive, useful investment of time and budget financially and time and, and people's you know mental energy to go through. And, and you mentioned the human factor of like having to communicate this stuff out to people. Sounds like a daunting task, but it could be an email.
1: Yeah, it can be an email, but I do think it actually, it's the opposite of the meme around this meeting could have been email. I think that email could, should be a meeting because I actually love how you mentioned refactoring too, because it's making me think about how these two, how unshipping is related to refactoring because like I, and I'm sure you think this way too, but like software compared with physical construction, right? They're building a building down the street from me or whatever. And it's, you know, we get the support beams up and we start putting walls in and floors in. And it's like, you wouldn't, expect the construction. I mean, there's going to be some maintenance issues. Sure. For that too, but they're not going to rebuild the wall, you know, but like software is different where it's like, we're doing our best approximation of we're using code to solve this problem with our best approximation of what we know right now. And we're putting it out there, but as time passes, we know more. And then it's like, well, what do we do with that? And if we know more and it's material to the business, like it's going to grow revenue because like we can change things quicker and ship faster or add features, of course, then that's worth investing in. And I think the other side is too, like we've learned that this isn't actually a useful capability. So by kind of taking this away, we're going to lighten our platform and be able to focus better on what our real value is. It's not something you necessarily even could know at the beginning, right? It's like you have to ship something. And then when you learn things, and I think this is where most businesses, in my experience, or at least startup companies, they don't do this second part. They don't say like, well, now we've learned more about what actually is our main focus, like what resonates the most with our customers, what gets the most use. And then it's like, OK, but that also implies then we we now know what isn't what doesn't resonate with customers, what isn't used. And then that second part is like, well, what do you do with that information And my proposal is like, you know, and what this mixed panel article talks about is you unship that stuff because it's not, it can be a little bit hard to see the immediate value, but on a long term sense, if your product is successful and your platform is going to be around for a while, you're going to get a lot of knock on benefits. And, you know, I've even worked on teams where it's like, there's things that just hurt my soul a little bit about like reorganizing code or, or maintaining code that, that is not even used or called. Like I've worked on platforms where that's the case. And it's like, it's like a almost going to battle where it's like raising awareness about these things that are not used or needed so that people don't, I don't think people intend to work on things that are not needed, but the, the, the truth is like some of our analytics and stuff around code execution and feature usage and stuff that it's sometimes it's not good or it doesn't exist. And so, you know, we we haven't really gotten into specific tactics, but just briefly, like one tactic of course, is you have to kind of add analytics and know what is actually used here. And it doesn't really need to be fancy. It could just be like your APM tool, like looking at API endpoints, like have there been any hits to this API endpoint in the last month? You know, something like that.
0: What other types of tools and and strategies do you take for like getting an assessment for, if, if someone works in a team right now and there's like no analytics, no tracking of what is being called or not being called, maybe they have like a sense of their test coverage and how much of the code base is covered, but that doesn't necessarily mean that users are using it. It just means that their tests are using it. So- What sort of like tactics have you seen work well for kind of going in and starting to collect some information and data about things outside of asking your your end users, like, do you use this? You could do that, I guess too.
1: Yeah. Right. Cause yeah, you can ask, yeah, it's a qualitative thing. And that's like, there's some utility in that because in terms of a quantitative thing, you might see a few hits on an endpoint and you might be like, "Eh," you know, can we actually change this or whatever? And then you might need to dig in more and see which customers. And, but yeah, I'd say like a few things to rattle off a super easy one that all developers, I believe literally every developer listening to this could use at least on macOS, there's, and I think it's actually available on all platforms, but there's this tool called unused. That's a command line tool. And um, on macOS, you can install it with Homebrew and it does static analysis on the code base. And it works with Ruby and other programming languages. Like are these methods that are defined actually called anywhere? And it's really surprising if, if you have an application that's been around for a while, it's like, how did this happen? But it happens all the time. I mean, developers make PRs and changes that um, remove the caller for a particular method, but they don't remove the method that was called, for example, and so you'll have like stuff like that. That's kind of micro micro removals, I'd say, or micro unshipping. The bigger bang for your, or the bigger impact, is going to be feature level things because those are going to include lots of layers of software and then the data and that sort of thing. So for that, the biggest Improvement to my workflow has been our, our team introduced this open source project from a developer I used to work with actually called Dan Mayer, or named Dan Mayer, created this project called CoverBand, and it's open source. It's uh, written in Ruby, and it uses Redis for persistence. But essentially what it does is, you know, you have to set up a Redis instance to capture usage data, but essentially it tracks executions and invocations of code throughout your code. And, and then it presents that information in a web UI where you can... List all your controller endpoints and things, for example, or your model methods and things like that. And you can see like how much, it's obviously going to add a lot of, uh, it's going to add a little bit of uh, latency and it's going to add a lot of data in Redis about usage. So you want to be mindful of, you know, you want to test it in a pre-prod environment and stuff first, but you're going to get a lot of analytics about how much is your code actually called in your real production context, which is huge. You get so much because the inverse of that then is the code that's not called. And it, it makes it really clear to immediately, you can just, of course, like sort that way. And you can be like, bam, here are 10, you know, in a Rails app anyways, here are 10 controllers that like in the last 30 days, there's been literally zero calls of these. And and it's like, here's the controversial part though. It might be features that the company doesn't have awareness of or even advocates for. They might they might actually be like, these are important features. And then you might be the first person to learn that they're not really used or called. And that can be tricky to navigate in terms of uh, the, uh, the people side challenge there. But yeah, on the technical side, CoverBand is a great tool. And personally, I used it along with several team members. And we were able to around 100,000 line eight-year-old Rails code base that had gone through lots of pivots as a company and that sort of thing, or like as the main application for a company with lots of pivots. I personally sent dozens of PRs removing, removing code that had no usage thanks to Coverband. So that was really cool.
0: That's cool, yeah. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes. One of the other things I wanted to quickly switch gears with and discuss with you is, you know, I know that you've transitioned from being a full time employee to an independent consultant. Can you share some of your experience about, you know, what kind of led to this shift and what prompted it and what have you been most surprised about?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm just really on the beginning side of it. And to be honest with you, I don't know if it's going to work out because I have so little information, but I have a lot of enthusiasm, as I mentioned, for working with Postgres. And in my experience, it's been a really practical set of skills to have because companies do, you know, tend to have challenges over time. It could be high volume data growth that's causing really poor query performance, or it could be like, you know, is the schema design we have good, or we want to do this migration from this cloud provider to this other one, or we want to do a major version upgrade of our database. There's all sorts of things. So yeah, I have mostly worked as a full-time engineer and yeah, thinking about where I wanted to go with My career. I am interested in helping, as I mentioned before. Like I I enjoy working with developers, and I'm interested in helping solve database challenges that teams are facing. And one thing I found is, if you're at a smaller company, there may not be. It's a it's a more specialized skill set, and there might not be as much need for it at a full time as in terms of a full time function. What I want to explore is. If I can offer services part-time to a number of different companies at the same time, I could theoretically earn an income that's going to be comparable to what I would make as a full-time engineer. And it would allow me to uh, continue to kind of, you know, build more expertise and and share it around uh, and hopefully become even more efficient at solving those kinds of challenges for companies. And then of course, like for myself, selfishly, I can work on things that I'm really interested in and But it is, it's like a risk on the other side too, because it's a more narrow focus for my career plans and that sort of thing. So I'm, like I mentioned, I'm actually going to be, we're recording this at a different time from when you're publishing it, but I'm going to be just got a couple of clients I'm working with now, uh, but just in a limited set of hours. And I want to actually explore, can I bring some of this experience that I've had at companies to more teams and help apply some more good practices to their software platforms?
0: yeah thanks for sharing a little bit of background on like what led you to move from being a full-time employee moving into the consulting space and i know you i'm assuming you'll be looking for more clients in the new year and so we'll definitely include links to, your sh- to where people can learn more about you if they're working with postgres or in this sort of capacity you know i had made my own transition once upon a time so i commend you for making the the jump it's a little scary uh, but also can be really awesome and lead to a lot of interesting opportunities and I think when I made the, you know, you're not that you're looking for any advice, but the one thing that I kind of thought about was like the worst thing that I could possibly happen is I have to go get a job again. And so, I mean, I mean, there's probably worse things that could happen. And like, I never find a job again. And maybe that's why I work for myself because I might not actually be that hireable, but I've continued to keep hiring myself. It seems.
1: Yeah, it is. I agree with you that it's kind of a discussion I've had with my partner as well. Like, you know, what I've been fortunate, to, you know be a full-time software engineer for like about 15 years now. and so in that time, I've been able to put a little money away and take on a little more risk than I might have been able to earlier in my career. and And I think uh, I also feel like I have reached a level of competency with a set of skills that again could be something companies want on a, a more niche or a more specialized basis, right? Like someone they might not have a full-time employee that's focusing on that. but hey, we can bring in this person they can help us out for a bit, maybe even do some team training and stuff like that. And that kind of idea really excites me. But yeah, let's, let's check in in a few months and I can give you an update.
0: (laughs) That sounds great. One of the things that I hadn't planned to ask this, but something that I, I think about is I realized early on that I needed to still work with other people on a regular basis and not outside of just the clients that I felt like I needed some peers. And so I think, so there's this interesting thing when you become an independent consultant, there's like, then your next question is like, if you get busy enough, when do you maybe consider bringing more people on to help you with these projects? Do you take that leap or not? Or do you truly stay independent and a solo hired gun in, in that capacity? And that's that's an interesting thing to kind of navigate. And I think, I don't know if I recommend one way or another necessarily, but I know that I'm a very collaborative person and I've I've leaned that way because I felt like, It was less about just the business side of like we can work with more customers if I, you know, if there's a lot of opportunity available, there's this interesting kind of trade off that you're like all of a sudden and then you've got completely different problems and now you're running a business and you're not actually doing the thing that you wanted to do all the time. Or you need to like, oh, I want to run a a business with people and then that's, that's the new job, you know. So you might have a job that you're really good at and then you hire people and then all of a sudden you just realize that you've given yourself a different job and then people struggle with that.
1: Yeah, that would be a big change. And there's even consulting companies that, or you could look at it the other way around too. And I've, this is something that I'm not taking off of the table, like nothing's really off the table, but the uh, joining a consulting company as an employee where it's like, you could still then, you know, maybe you get to still work on some of the areas that you are most passionate about, but you have that, maybe that more, you might lose, you'll lose some individual autonomy, but you'll gain like some more stability as far as being an employee and a regular income and that kind of thing.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Andrew in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone in the industry you should think I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Andrew Atkinson. That's the takeaway that I try to, when when we bring in our, we have interns that come in pretty much almost every quarter and one of budding software junior developers, they join us. And then one of the things I will ask them is like, what type of company are you going to look for? And like, well, you know, I I like working with Ruby on Rails. I want to find a company that does Rails. I'm like, but okay, a couple of things to consider. Like you can go work for like a agency, consultancy type place where they specialize in Ruby on Rails and they work with a variety of clients. Or you can go work for a company that's like a SaaS product or a company that just happens to have a Ruby on Rails application as part of their business there's these like three different types of in in my world like at least my perspective there's like three groupings of you got your agency world and you're going to get a lot of variety of projects and different domains you're going to get to work in if you work for a SaaS product company where that's their product you're going to learn a lot about product development and everything in there or you might work at some other company that just happened to have a on rails application built that plays an important part for some small aspect of their business but they see it's valuable enough to employ multiple developers to maintain it and work on it and add features to it so those are all three very very different things that just happen to use the same tech stack but your working relationship and what you're going to learn in those is probably going to be wildly different and so like It's something I always try to think about it. They're not all the same just because they all use the same tech stack. So something I could try to get them to think about a little bit, like what kind of environment do you want to want to work in? Because it's very different.
1: I think a lot of developers get overwhelmed with, you know, there's so much to learn technically that I, I'll speak for myself like earlier in my career I think there's so much to learn technically and then as we, you know you're you're fighting imposter syndrome and stuff like can I actually do anything that's employable you know for a company like that that's a lot to deal with so I like speaking for myself I think it can be comforting to focus on the tech side but as like you said these companies they're trying to grow they're really a business right the software portion is supports the business it may it may or may not be the main if it's a software company, it might be the main way that they make money, but it could also be in an auxiliary role where it's supporting some part of the business and it's really not a core revenue driver and stuff. I don't um, think that it makes sense to tell or to recommend one of those as being better than the other, but I do think it makes sense to recommend folks think about, regardless of where they want to go, like think about the business that they're joining and what kind of drives the growth of the business and where they fit in with that picture. And, you know, cause like what I found too, as, as we know, there's been a lot of layoffs and cuts in the tech industry in the last year to two years in particular. And I, I think that in some sense it's riskier to go down a more of a technical path. And I, most of my career has been in a product world. And I, if you had mentioned five years ago, I'd be like partial DBA staff engineer sort of person and be, and I, I would think that that would have sounded really weird because I've always been more of like a product developer but I kind of try to keep in mind like where my value might fit. And then I feel like I also understand, like, you know, I've had the privilege to understand like what those other roles, like how they will impact the business and how the business might be like, how are we hiring for this position? And what's our, you know, I've, I've been worked as a hiring manager as well. So I have some insight there. And, um, when you're early in your career, like you don't have that experience to lean on. So I, I think just, having some awareness of the business, choosing a path, hopefully it works out for you, but if it doesn't, you can go into a different type of work, like you mentioned, it could be a product company or, or something else. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a, it is a nice thing about software development is like you have all of these ways you can contribute. You know, we didn't even get into like open source, but that's a whole other thing too. But yeah, there's there's lots of different kind of layers from the business's perspective that uh, you can make contributions to uh, in the software part of it.
0: That's, it's very true. And, you know, I think your, your point there around not recommending one of those different types of businesses to be better than the other, but I, I always try to get people to at least think about that and, and consider how they're applying for a job somewhere, you know, when cause one of our goals with the earn interns is like, what can we do to help get you ready to like. Make feel confident enough that you can go apply for these jobs that you want to go get. Like I'm not going to commit to hiring you, but I want to help do everything I can to like, like help you get the move in that right direction and get your foot in the door somewhere. And and having been on the end of the interviewing process for so many years, when topics would come up related to like why you could work at a lot of different interesting places, why Planet Argon, and you're like well you use Ruby on Rails, and I'm like great, but like what about our type of clients and the type of projects we work on is going to resonate with you how do you think you can how are you going to contribute to that or is it just the code and that and there's an interesting thing there, like trying to weed out like as you're assessing people there on the interviewing side on the interviewer side is that you can, you need to see past some of those kind of responses but I do think it could be helpful for people if you're applying for a job to speak to that type of business a little bit more like I have a lot of product background, you're a product company, this is something I can contribute and I can um, be more valuable quicker. Or I'm really good at like working within internal products where, you know, there's a small team, maybe Uh, I'm not expecting you to have a 50 engineer team. Or if you're moving from a company, like I've been working at a product company, and we have 50 engineers. And I would, I'm would i really excited about the idea of working at a team that's like five people and make, making a bigger difference and getting to closely work with the end users because they're in the building or they're in the, the same organization. And it's not like the yeah. end users are some mystical creatures that pull their credit card every once in a while out and sign up for a SaaS product. So it's a very different type of like uh, end user relationship as well with who you're getting to interact with there. So I think you could Tease that into your uh, your your cover letters a little bit more, I think would be.
1: And if if I can jump in here quick, I like to bring this all the way back to the unshipping thing. It's it's all connected, right? Like it's all like the software is you know part of what the software again. Like the unshipping thing probably I, I probably had a lot of implications in there. It's I was talking about mainly a SaaS offering, and I was talking about a software company that primarily gets its revenue from selling the software on a subscription basis. So in my experience with like the unshipping. And trying to actually lead that at a company with like more than a hundred people, it involved really having conversations with directly with accounting folks and of course, product managers and some of the sales folks about like what they're seeing out on the front lines and things like that. And all of that's part of it too. It's all, it's like, a even though we talked about like cover band and the unused command line tool and stuff, like on the way other side of things, like non-technical business, like what's actually happening in the real world and stuff, that's all kind of connected to me to this like unshipping and like the vitality and like uh, efficiency of your software platform, right? Like not having, being able to remove things that are not adding value. And you're not going to really know that besides the technical metrics, you're not going to know that without collecting at least some qualitative feedback from folks and building some relationships there. And those, those things are, they're going to help support you in those efforts. You know, it's not, it's not something that should, or in my opinion, could be a purely technical thing
0: very true. And good things for people listening to kind of reflect on there as they think about next steps in their own career journey. So a couple of quick class questions for you. Let's imagine there's some some listeners who have been at their company for a while and they've been concerned about long-term maintainability of their web app or application or maybe even their database, but they don't feel like their ideas have been heard. They've maybe faced a few too many times. Not right now. It might feel discouraged and maybe starting to think, I'm not going to bother asking anymore. Do you have any advice on what they could start doing today to make a difference?
1: Yeah, I guess the first thing that came to mind to me was to focus on the benefits from, you know, the company's perspective. You know, I think it's easy as a developer to fall into the trap of just being like, well, we can remove this dependency, which is awesome. I love that's like the, the cherry on top for me is being able to remove dependencies that are not needed and stuff like that and simplify the code base. But the benefit to software team or even a company would be our developers, you gotta collect some data and you gotta kind of put together a little bit of a proposal, but you can say like we've had developers working on fixing uh, flaky tests or making our test suite faster or you know working on code areas that are not uh, used by our customers. So we need to do some cleanup to help make our developers more efficient and allow them to bring things to market faster you know, particularly if you know a lot of companies I worked at, like there could be some kind of at least sales-driven companies. There might even be some conversations around like, oh, our software, and especially if it's a big company, like our software team isn't going fast enough, or we're not like we're missing opportunities in the market, right? Some competitor launched the the latest AI chatbot, and it's better than ours, or whatever. <laughs> um, so, but if you think about that, you can you can use that you can use that as well as uh, like you can go on the offense. You can be like, hey you know, I know how we can ship faster. We need to have a more cohesive code base that reflects what is valuable to our customers. So therefore we got to put some engineering time into the, we got to invest some time to do that. And, you know, you don't need like developer productivity team and all these sorts of things. It's just like, here's basically some work that's spec out that has some supporting evidence for it. And let's get it into the next like iteration.
0: That's some good advice for folks. So outside of the the technical realm, is there a non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to people?
1: Well, okay, so this is cheating a little bit, but it's not purely non-technical, but it's it's a, the book, it's called by Will Larson called Staff Engineer. And I am a a former staff engineer myself, but at the time I was reading it, I was aspiring to get a job where I worked with that title. So part of it was practical, but I wanted to kind of understand like what are the different archetypes for like a staff engineer. And and there's a lot of part of the reason I love the book is because there's a lot of interviews with different people at different companies talking about what their roles were, what they were comprised of. And um, it really shows how there's not really one definition of what you can do. You know, you can be someone who helps people more. You can be like a super coder. You can report to the CTO. You can do a lot of different things like, you know, depending on how the role works at different companies. So I think the book is great for even if you're not looking to get that type of position like for career growth and there's a lot of just really good advice in there about like how to um, drive your if you're if you have a career in software development there's I believe there's a lot of good advice in there.
0: Wonderful. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for our listeners. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software engineering online? And we'll we'll definitely include links in the show notes for everybody as well, but where's the go-to place?
1: Yeah, I've really dialed up my uh, social media presence uh to to promote the book. The a lot of the promotion for by authors with pragmatic programmers is really driven by the authors and then the publisher kind of helps the authors. But so I'm, I'm really on every social media, most of the social media platforms, Twitter and Twitter slash X is where I'm most active. And my handle there is, is and at and D a T K I. Otherwise I'm also on Mastodon. And then I also blog at andyatkinson.com or you can connect with me on LinkedIn or that sort of thing. So if you uh, search for my name, you'll, you'll probably find me. And I I love to uh, meet new people and uh, share some ideas and that
0: sort of thing. That's wonderful. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Andrew. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop. Thanks again for the opportunity, Robbie. It was a lot of fun.